Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue that takes a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at the policy and the framing of various instances of political journalism. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Monday, May 16th, 2022, and while our family is still bonding with our new baby boy, I'm excited to bring to you Part 7 of my Solving Guns project. This is a multi-part series that we're sharing first with our Polylog listeners, a project I've spent years on. The goal is to examine every form of gun violence, to go deep on the reasons why people own guns in the first place, and to find solutions without passing laws. Not because laws are a bad idea or a good idea, but because laws are not solving this issue right now. Whether you love guns or hate them, my hope is that the solutions here can unite those in the left and the right behind one goal, to save lives, something we can all agree on. You can find this project with written versions and some videos online at solvingguns.org. You can also find access to the 2,000 plus pages of facts and statistics that I leaned on for this project. So this is part seven, the second part of the multi-part discussion on reducing mass shootings without the need for gun control legislation. Last week, we talked about two other types of mass shootings people often don't think of, mass familicide and gang-related and crime-related shootings. This time, mass public shootings. We're going to begin cracking open that issue. So let's go ahead and so let's go ahead and get started. Mass public shootings are terrifying. I think about them from time to time in a public space, standing in a crowd, or shunted into a corner, waiting for an elevator, or sitting in a stadium, you can't help but think about them, because we've all read the headlines. We've all seen the pictures, and in some cases, the grainy video, the footage of a blurry figure stalking through the frame, gun in hand, blowing everyone and everything away in their path. Mass public shootings are why we have debates on guns today. We're not talking about gun control because we're trying to prevent bank robberies or muggings or home invasions or barroom brawls. We're talking about gun control because of Columbine and Virginia Tech, Sandy Hook and San Bernardino. We're talking about gun control because of what happened at the Pulse nightclub and what happened in Las Vegas and what's bound to happen next week, next month, next year that will turn a place name into a chilling reminder of inhumanity. But... But what if we could stop it? That's what the gun control argument is all about. Stopping gun violence, like mass shootings. Advocates say, let's make it harder for killers to collect assault weapons. Harder for those with domestic violence records to get their hands on handguns. Harder for those with criminal records to arm themselves with more weapons to commit more crimes. But gun control has stalled, and though any measure that reduces the availability of guns is likely to in some way reduce the risk of gun violence, assault rifle bans and magazine size restrictions and universal background checks are unlikely to be passed anytime soon. And even if they did pass, that passage probably won't stop mass shooters in their tracks. But that can't be the end of the road. We have to think harder, think smarter, think about more ways we can reduce gun violence this most terrifying form of gun violence, mass public shootings, without the need to get 60 votes in the Senate, without a veto-proof majority, without going head-to-head with the NRA. 
Let's think of some things we can do without legislation to stop mass public shootings. Because maybe, just maybe, some of these things can actually get done and actually make a difference. So let's start now. First, what is a mass public shooting? The definition is exact. A shooting that happens in public that kills four or more people. Public is pretty clear. It can't happen at home. It's the four or more that I'm getting hung up on here. I mean, I know we can't call every murder a mass public shooting. One person hardly makes a mass. But there have to be mass public shootings that kill fewer than four and are still terrifying, right? By this definition, the four or more definition, if someone goes on a rampage with a rifle and shoots 18 people, but nobody dies, it's not considered a mass shooting. So the July 2012 shooting at the Copper Top Bar in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where someone went on a rampage with a rifle, shot 18 people, but nobody died, that event isn't technically a mass public shooting. By the four or more definition, if someone takes a handgun and an assault rifle to work, shoots people, wounding 14, but ultimately killing only three, as in a February 2016 incident at a lawn care manufacturing plant in Newton, Kansas, it's not considered a mass public shooting. This is a problem. The four or more definition is a problem if we're trying to get a sense of the size of mass public shootings. So some have tried to modify the definition to say a mass public shooting is one where three or more people are killed rather than four or more. But that wouldn't include a March 2001 shooting at a high school in Santee, California, where a student brought a handgun and shot 15 people killing two, or one that wounded eight and killed two at a Portland nightclub in January 2009, or a shooting at a mall in Columbia, Maryland in January 2014 that injured five, killed two, and included not only a shotgun but explosives, or in total 130 other terrifying shootings over the last 15 years that just don't make the four or even the three casualty cutoff, but that in total hurt nearly 500 people. So a three or more definition won't work either. Because what we're ultimately afraid of, what we're trying to stop, isn't some statistic calculated after the fact. It's the terror of someone firing a gun at people in a public place. That simple definition happens to be exactly the definition that the FBI tracks. The Bureau tracks all public shootings, even if nobody is ultimately killed. They call them active shooter incidents. This is a better definition because it captures more of what we're afraid of. There are more incidents to track, more to study, and try to understand. So let's take a look. So if you look at the FBI's data set, which unfortunately was a 29-page PDF with each incident in paragraph form, it, uh, it, it takes a while to kind of work through all of the numbers. It's useful as a kind of quick reference, but we've got to get this thing into a spreadsheet so we can run some numbers, which is exactly what I did to make sense of the 213 incidents that the FBI tracked between December 2000 and the summer of 2016, which was the Pulse nightclub shooting. That was the last one in the data set that I looked at. The first incident back in 2000 killed seven people. The last one killed 49. So it took way more hours than I thought, but I put together a spreadsheet with 213 rows across 43 columns with over 9,000 little discrete cells of data. Yes, it was a lot of typing, a lot of data entry. But I think the first thing that I noticed was that there are more active shootings now than there used to be. Of course, we knew this. You can read about it in headlines, but when you actually look at it on a graph you see a trend line that's pretty clearly moving up. In the first year of the complete data set, the year 2001, there were seven active shooter incidents in total. 
That works out to about one incident every 52 days. In the last year of the data set, summer 2015 to summer 2016, there were 22 active shooter incidents. That's an average of one incident every 15 days. So rather than reading about an active shooter event in the news roughly every two months, we now read about it roughly every two weeks. Yes, incidents are increasing, but one might ask, isn't each incident also more deadly than it used to be? I mean, the last incident in the data set, as I said, was the Pulse nightclub shooting. That was the deadliest at its time in U.S. history. Well, to test this common wisdom, we can look at the average number of people killed per incident each year. In 2001, 12 people were killed in total across six incidents. So on average, each incident resulted in two deaths. If you do that for each year, you get a graph that is barely moving up. So deadliness isn't really increasing all that much. There is an increase, though. You can see it in the slight slant of the graph, but that slant is heavily weighted by 2016, by that single incident in 2016, in fact, the Pulse nightclub shooting. But if you take that incident out, you notice that average deadliness is completely flat between 2001 and 2015. That's really surprising and not at all what I expected to find, especially with all the talk about assault weapons and high-capacity rifles, especially considering that the federal assault weapons ban was in effect for the first four years of the data set, but not in effect for the last 11. This isn't to say that there aren't some really deadly incidents out there. We've all read about them. But you can't say that the average public shooting is getting more deadly. It isn't. What does the average incident look like, though? Is there even such a thing? I mean, if someone opens fire in public, what's the most likely outcome? To try to understand this, I sorted the data by deadliness and added it up, taking a look at how many incidents there were when zero people were killed, which is 47 incidents, how many when one person was killed, 49 incidents, two people were killed, 34, so on and so forth. What I noticed was that the numbers dropped off really steeply. If someone opens fire in public, the most likely outcome is that just one person is killed. The second most frequent outcome is that no one is killed at all. A graph like this really shows just how crazy the three largest outliers are, the massive casualty incidents. The one that killed 27, which is Sandy Hook Elementary, the next one at 32, which was Virginia Tech, and of course 49, which is the Pulse nightclub shooting. Since Pulse nightclub and since this data set, there has been one with even more deaths, that is the shooting in Las Vegas during the concert by the sniper, and that resulted in 60 people killed. Those stand out, and they are terrifying, and there's a lot more to say about those specific incidents, but they are not the majority. They are not even the average or close to average. And the number killed data set isn't a fluke. You can do the same thing for the number of people who are wounded, and you get the same looking graphic, heavily weighted at the lower numbers with a few outliers. What the shape of that data tells us is that active shooter events fall into a recognizable pattern. They're governed by similar forces anywhere and anytime they happen to occur. These forces tend to keep the number killed low, but not low enough. Let's look at each stage of a potential public shooting, see what makes it tick, and then try to prevent it. First, I need to say something about guns. You can't have public shootings without guns. So many solutions out there focus on cutting the gun out of the equation. 
There's nothing wrong with this logic. And there are lots of things we can do to reduce the number of guns out there, with and without passing legislation. The other sections of this gun project are full of those ideas. Ideas that suggest ways to reduce the number of guns that people keep for home protection, hunting, and sport. So I encourage you to look at those, because if implemented, each one of them could make a mass shooting less likely to happen. But I'm not going to repeat those ideas here, because here we are focusing in on active shooter incidents, which are different and provide different opportunities for reducing violence. So let's dive in. We'll start where many active shootings start with the forces that act on an individual to make them frustrated. I say make them frustrated, but I should say make him frustrated, because nearly all active shooter incidents are perpetrated by men. 97%, in fact. So that over the last 15 years, the 15 years of our data set, there were only seven incidents with women as the sole shooter. For comparison, when it comes to plain old murder, men make up 90% of offenders. So active shootings are even more dominated by men than other forms of murderous violence. The age breakdown is fascinating too, especially when you compare it to the U.S. population. It's clear from that data set that from the teenage years through a man's 50s, the number of active shooters tracks very closely to the U.S. population, with the only notable outlier being the 20s. Those in their 20s are 36% more likely to become active shooters than population numbers would suggest. At about age 60, people finally become less likely to commit active shootings as compared to population numbers, and it just keeps declining from there. This close tracking to the U.S. population isn't at all what we see when we look at other violent crimes like murder. If you look at homicides compared to the U.S. population, you notice... First, that the age 20s are just off the charts. The 20s are off the charts dangerous compared to the overall U.S. population. Literally two and a half times more people commit homicide in their 20s than population numbers would suggest. The teens and 30s track with population numbers, but once people get to their 40s, they become far less likely to commit homicide, and the numbers keep dropping from there. And again, when I say people, I mean men. So the biggest takeaways here... The 20s are the most dangerous decade, but in homicide, this is even more true. For regular murder, men become less dangerous by age 40, but for public shootings, the story is different. Men don't become less dangerous than their representation in the population until age 60, 20 years later. What does this comparison tell us? Active shootings aren't like other types of violent crime. They stand alone. And the forces that cause them affect men of all ages, from their teenage years right up to their 60s. What happens after age 60 that makes them drop off? Well, that's when men generally drop out of the workforce. If you look at workforce participation by age, you'll notice that there is a dramatic drop after the 50s. Just as mass familicide shootings were often caused by stress and anxiety within the family, mass public shootings are often caused by stress and anxiety within institutions like school and work. Once men age out of those institutions and reach retirement, their risk of becoming an active shooter drops too. So if we want to reduce active shootings, one thing we can try to do is reduce the distress that men feel at institutions like schools and workplaces. These institutions, by the way, account for 37.5% of all active shooting locations. We'll start with school. If we look at school shooters, we see that they tend to be outsiders. They either find themselves ostracized by their peers, ostracized by their teachers and the administration, or simply loners by choice. 
Ostracism isn't a fluke. School is kind of built for it. It's arranged in such a way that students are cut off from those they might find common interests with. For example, siblings are pretty much always separated, in different classes, different lunch groups, different breaks even. And close friends can often be scattered to different teachers and periods set at random every semester. Then there's the issue of age. The stratification by age creates institutionally enforced and sanctioned hierarchies of power. Eighth graders are never in classes with second graders, so they think they are better than them. Twelfth graders are never in classes with tenth graders, so these tenth graders aren't their peers and equals, they are by definition beneath them. So we have division by age, division by period, and there's division of space. The majority of school is taken up with time spent in the classroom, with limited opportunities to socialize. The day mostly looks like sitting at a desk, looking up at a blackboard while the teacher goes over the lesson. Maybe there's busy work with worksheets and quizzes, and maybe there's the occasional group project. But most of school is silent and sedentary. What does social time look like in school? It looks like a mad rush of lunchtime. Spare minutes between classes and pockets of time before and after school. We don't think about this that much. In fact, we expect friendships, camaraderie, and a sense of belonging to just happen in these in-between moments. But that's kind of like expecting you to make friends while you wait in line at the grocery store or while you commute in the morning. It's like expecting you to make friends with a random person sitting next to you in the movie theater. It's no surprise that lots of kids find this daunting. For these kids, it just doesn't happen. Bullying, then, is reinforced not only by the stratification of older kids from younger kids, sibling from sibling, and friend from friend, but by the transactional nature of free time. The period between classes isn't enough time to get to know people as people, but it is enough time to pick on them. This all conspires to create one of the most vulnerable inequalities in school, that between those who have lots of friends and those who have few. These aren't the only pressures put on students, of course. What do teachers and administrators do to solve antisocial behavior? They send kids to detention or expel them. Yes, they fix antisocial problems by removing kids from their social environment. Of course, this only compounds the problem. How could it not? Then there's the enormous weight of college preparation or career selection. That constant nagging, which feels more like a curse than an encouragement. Better get this grade or you'll be doomed for life. And add on top of that the hormonal swirl of puberty, of biological and psychological changes that are absolutely earth-shattering. School becomes ground zero for stress, but school's only the half of it. There's also the drama of home life, of parental expectations that every kid must negotiate, and then part-time work or childcare responsibilities, the need to watch younger siblings while also supposedly getting mountains of homework done before that 6 a.m. alarm clock. Science told us decades ago that kids need more sleep than adults, but we still insist on tearing them out of bed at earlier and earlier hours. Is it any mystery, when you add it all up, why some kids rebel violently against this social straitjacket? Some say that we can reduce school shootings by reducing bullying. So they suggest anti-bullying campaigns and zero-tolerance policies for violence and intimidation. Sure, these might make some difference, but why don't we talk about changing the structure that breeds bullies, rather than punishing the bullies that structure creates? This is actually really easy to do, and might actually save money and improve school performance. One of the best ideas out there is by Salman Khan, the founder of the online learning site Khan Academy. He wrote a book on this idea called One World Schoolhouse. The plan is this. First, don't stratify kids by age. Different kids learn at different rates. This is true not just of kids, but of everyone. 
No other social institution that humans engage in is stratified by age except education. Think about it. The family get-togethers you have? People of all ages. Your workplace? People of all ages. A day at the park? The movies? The beach? People of all ages are everywhere, getting along, sharing ideas, conversation, learning. Khan's first priority is to break down the walls between the ages. Imagine it. A 10th grader in the same class as an 8th grader. A 12th grader helping a 6th grader with math homework. Or vice versa. Now imagine some other kid is picking on or teasing that 8th grader. You don't think that 12th grader is going to step in and protect them? Mixed age learning can help reduce bullying. But more than that, it reduces the stress that students might feel about falling behind their cohort in a certain subject. If all of your classes are full of old students and young students, the only measurement of progress is how you do on the work at hand. Khan's other brilliant idea is to flip the learning experience on its head. Today, in traditional classrooms, students watch lectures in class and then apply that learning to homework and group projects after school. But this is crazy. Every study ever released shows that the best way to learn is to do. So why do we leave this most active side of learning to the home? The home, where some students have computers and desks and engaged parents and siblings, and some students have chores and siblings to watch, and parents who may or may not be at work until 9 p.m., in households that may resemble a crowded subway car more than a library. If learning the lesson is just a lecture that students are expected to listen to in silence, well, that's something they can do at home. It's easy, and it doesn't require anything but attention. Yes, Khan's idea is to flip the script, make kids watch the lecture at home, and then, at school, apply that learning through experience. Just imagine if you spent the majority of time at school working with fellow students on a problem, creating a story, or building a presentation. All of that time would be social, and all of it would make teachers available not as boring dictaphones on the other side of the room, but helpful guides there to assist you along the path of understanding. Bullying would be reduced, socializing would increase, and become not a side effect of school where some students excel and others fail, socializing would be the point and purpose of school. Every student would have a chance to hone those skills, to find common allies, and to build strong friend networks that included more than teachers and peers, but mentors and mentees. Another upside is that it would make education more equitable. Students wouldn't need to watch the lecture of a bad teacher. They could watch the same engaging video content at home as the richest kids in the most elite schools. One of the top indicators of suicide, a problem that each year 16% of high school students contemplate seriously, one of the top indicators is a sense of powerlessness and the feeling of being a burden to others. How do we combat this? By empowering students to help fellow students. That's why one of the best things that can ever happen to someone is for them to be a mentor to someone else. An environment like the One World Schoolhouse would knit students together of all age groups and skill levels. This model of school empowers kids to take more control of their education and, as Khan has suggested, could significantly improve outcomes. It could also remove the inequalities that crop up in a system that puts so much learning pressure on the home environment and on the discipline to buckle down and do homework. But Khan isn't alone, and his isn't the only model. An even more dramatic example of student empowerment is outlined by developmental psychologist Peter Gray in his book Free to Learn. 
Gray points out how stress levels have risen over the last few decades as kids have had more and more responsibilities piled on, while parents have taken more and more of their power and autonomy away from them. Kids are now expected to do community service, take AP classes, participate in sports, lead clubs, and pass one standardized test after another, all to become attractive prospects for college admission. They've been told that failure to get into college means failure in life, elevating each mindless worksheet and book report to a matter of life and death. At the same time, parents have restricted their children's autonomy at every opportunity. Fewer kids are allowed to walk to school, stay out after dark, or play in the front yard for fear of being kidnapped. As Steven Pinker notes, of course, a parent would have to leave their child unattended for 500,000 years for there to be a likely chance of them being kidnapped. So a few hours after school are probably safe. When kids sit inside and play video games, parents groan that they're microwaving their brains. But what other option do they have when so much freedom has been restricted? Gray writes that when kids were asked what they would rather do, play with friends outdoors or play video games, 86% chose hang with friends. But they often can't. Could this restriction, stress, and lack of autonomy lead to school shootings? Of course it could, and it does. Peter Gray's answer is a radically different model for education, one built on the Sudbury Valley School. Here's what it looks like. Imagine a big manor-like house filled with home-like spaces, large parlors and living rooms, dining tables and common areas, no classrooms with blackboards, no desks aligned in rows, no locker-lined hallways. Students wander in and out of the house and wide lawn, and they spend their day completely free to pursue their own course of learning. If they're interested in music, they research music online, try out some instruments, study lyrics, and get with other students to maybe make some music of their own. Teachers aren't teachers so much as learning guides who can help students with any subject. So a teacher might gather information on music history, find videos of musical performances, or take some of the kids to the symphony for a backstage tour. There are no limits placed on a student's curriculum. If they're 100% engaged in music at the moment, then they're allowed to pursue that interest as far as it takes them. For a week, a month, a year. How do kids learn about math? Well, music is mathematical, isn't it? How do they learn about language? Classical music is inspired by the same forces as classical literature, and popular music is filled with poetic techniques. Students at Sudbury schools aren't just taught by the teachers. They pursue their own learning, create their own projects, and learn from other students. That's what Peter Gray means by free to learn, and it produces graduates who are more confident, more mature, and more self-sufficient. This is the exact opposite of the rigid, structured environment of current schools. It's a place where kids don't need to lash out violently to assert control over their lives. They already have control over their lives, and they're ready to take that experience of control and confidence to whatever they set their life to next, college, vocational training, the military, or the job market. This school model isn't just preparing students for their next job, it's preparing them to be responsible citizens. Sudbury is built on a democratic foundation. Decisions are made by debate and democratic vote. And just as in America, it's a one-person, one-vote model. Each student gets one vote. Each teacher and staff member gets one vote. What this means, of course, is that the students have more votes than the staff. And these aren't kiddie votes. The entire school is run by this process, from activities and events to budgeting and the hiring of landscapers. Even the school's system for dealing with disputes and misbehavior, its judicial system, is built on rules and policies enacted democratically. 
Students are empowered then in every way they can be empowered, from what they learn to how they spend their time, from who they socialize with to what they vote for. One of the primary targets of school shootings today is teachers, because teachers represent authority and can be the bearers of bad news in a system designed to deliver bad news of all sorts, bad grades, bad progress reports, and write-ups for bad behavior. In Gray's model, and even Kahn's, teachers are there to foster student curiosity and help them learn more of what they care about, even if that's video games, or, in one of my favorite examples from the book, alcohol. Yes, one student at the Sudbury Valley School spent months studying alcohol production and actually built his own distillery with teacher help. Now tell me, are you going to shoot the teacher who helped you build your own distillery? I don't think so. The lesson here is that we can make schools less dangerous by making them less awful, which is good because it not only saves lives, it helps to enrich them too. We can apply the same thinking to the workplace. But let's focus on that institution and the violence that happens in so many workplaces when we look at active shooting incidents next week. So that's it for the first part of our discussion on reducing active shooting incidents or mass public shootings, as people often think of it. Next week, we'll continue the discussion with a focus on workplaces and reducing those shootings, with ideas to do so without deploying gun control legislation. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you're welcome to email us at podcast at polylog.com. Remember, of course, you can find information about this project at solvingguns.org. You can tweet at me at bstidle. You can tweet at Naomi at sotonaomi underscore. And you can tweet at the show at polylogcast. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk with you again next week. Bye.